Do you love God but struggle to fit in? Do you have questions that never seem to get answered? Do you just want to have honest conversations about things that matter? Well, let's slow down and take the time to do just that. Welcome to Jesus Never Ran. I couldn't be more excited about this episode because we have author, speaker, amazing man, activist, Mr. Brian McLaren on the show. You know, I used to be worried that uh, I would offend people, but now I just feel like the times are so dangerous. I'm just going to say it, and if people can deal with it, I hope they will, and if they can't, I understand. Of course, before we get going, we need to mention our sponsors. First, we have Rise Nutrition. If you've been sitting around a little extra over these past couple of months and you need some help with your nutrition, check out Rise Nutrition. You can find them on Facebook at Rise Menominee. That's Rise with a Z and Angie and the crew there will be happy to help you with all of your nutrition needs. And then earlier this week, I was over at Infinity Beverages, one of my favorite places to hang out with friends, www.infinitybeverages.com. If you're in the Eau Claire area, be sure to check out their tasting room. If not, just order online. As I already mentioned, I couldn't be more excited for this interview with Brian McLaren. Brian has been one of the biggest influences in my life in regards to spiritual things for a long time now. So many incredible books. I think the first book I read from him was The Last Word and The Word After That. Generous Orthodoxy is great. New Kind of Christian is amazing. One of his most recent books, which is why I wanted to interview him right now as we're talking about church in faith, is called The Great Spiritual Migration. So I just want to jump right in because Brian McLaren has so many incredible things to say, such insight, such wisdom from his years of tackling the things that we're talking about. So I asked him, you know, I thought I would just start light. What are some of the biggest issues that we're facing in regards to church and religion? Sure. Well, you know, the irony for me is like, to me, this is the most obvious thing in the world. Like I I just see every day so many problems with religion in general. I mean, problems in Islam, problems in Judaism, problems in Buddhism, problems in atheism, to tell you the truth, but so many problems in Christianity. And the idea that people would be upset for us to try to address the problems in the Christian religion, I I just don't get it, right? But but in another way, I do, because a whole lot of people are being told every day that we're right, everybody else is wrong, Anybody who's making a critique of our religion is making a critique on God. And, you know, people in in many people's minds, they've just fused God, their religion, and their own ego. And so everything becomes very personal. One of the real joys of my life, really, in the last 20 years, especially, is I've had a lot more engagement with uh, rabbis and imams and uh, you know Buddhist teachers and monks and Hindus and so on. And one of the really interesting things that happens is when you, when you have what you might call reformers or contemplatives in one tradition get together with reformers or contemplatives in another, they get each other. <laughs> and uh, and th- you find out that that there are Muslims who are struggling in Islam for the soul of Islam. They watch Islam becoming, you know, 
violent and vicious in some quarters, and yet so loving and peaceful in others. And, you know, this feeling that there's this battle for the soul of every single religion. Maybe that's just part of the human condition. It's probably that way in politics and parties and countries. It's probably that way in companies and corporations, families, but certainly that way in religions. In Brian's book, The Great Spiritual Migration, highly recommend. Of course, I will put direct links in the show notes. But he talks about this time in his life when he was struggling with church, struggling with his faith, really questioning, should I even stay involved with church? Should I just leave my faith altogether with all of the questions that I have? And I'm guessing that a lot of us listening to this right now, and I'll include myself in this, have had those same thoughts and questions. But in his book, Brian mentions a time when he really sensed that he was, for lack of better words, called to stay within the church and that reform in so many areas could or maybe should come from within as opposed to coming from the outside. I was a pastor for many years and many times as a pastor, I became so disillusioned with the inner workings of the Christian I sometimes jokingly called it the Christian industrial complex, right? But I, I became disillusioned and I, I wanted to get out of ministry and I wanted to get out of Christianity. I, I would jokingly say my problem was I really love God. I really love Jesus. And, and I had enough problems in my life. I didn't want to add disobeying God to my problems and, and turning my back on God to my problems. So I never could really leave unless I felt, you know, deep in my heart that I was in some way being given permission and to leave, that that was the right thing to do. So in some ways, a lot of my commitment to stay was just out of that moral sense, this is what I'm supposed to do, this is where I'm called to be. But I have a friend, Lisa Sharon Harper, and Lisa Sharon is, a, uh, is an African-American evangelical, not an easy thing to be in the age of Trump. Lisa, Lisa Sharon said something a couple years ago that I, I think really is true. She said, it's a sign of privilege when people just decide to leave something. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to leave something. In fact, the book I'm beginning right now that will come out in two years is called Do I Stay Christian? So I understand when people feel morally compelled to disassociate. But what she was saying is that for me as a white person, this sense that, oh, I can just leave my religion because I have so much safety from all my other dimensions of privilege. But she said, you know, when you're African-American, your faith community is one of the only places where you have any protection. And it's one of the only places where you feel at home. And she said, not so easy to leave when your safety and sanity depends on it. I thought that was a really great, a really great point. It's, it's a struggle for a lot of people. And I think my first time where I thought about leaving Christianity was when I was, I don't know, 12 years old, maybe 11, maybe 13. And I really thought that evolution made a whole lot of sense. And my Sunday school teacher uh, said, oh, you have to choose. You either believe in God or evolution. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm, you know, whatever, 13 years old, you know, uh, four years, five years, and I'm out of here. <laughs> You know, when I was growing up, I'm 64. I know I don't look a day over 74, but, but when I was growing up, it was the era of Vatican II. And I would say most Catholics would not have been fundamentalists in that way. They wouldn't have said, you can't believe in evolution. I meet so many Catholics now who act more fundamentalist than they did 50 years ago. That's not true everywhere, but there's been this 
conservative reactionary, I call it a nostalgic reaction. And it's happening across religions. And to me, it makes me feel a huge amount of empathy for kids who are just coming of age today, because they, they have no idea in many cases that their religions are even more hostile and more rigid than they were a generation ago. That is a daunting thought to think about the idea that our faith and our religion is actually regressing, not progressing. Now, it's really easy to try to nitpick and find little spaces of why this might be true, but Brian takes a very different approach and it really boils down to how we are thinking. The first thing, the, the kind of the deepest thing I want to say is that, you know, in recent years, I've been working more and more closely with the Center for Action and Contemplation, Richard Rohr, some others. And one of the things Richard said to me years ago, he said, Brian, he said, I don't think we can help people change their theology until they change their level of consciousness. And what he meant by that is certain people are at a stage of thinking that we could call a dualistic stage of thinking. Everything they see, like they they aren't even aware of this. And all of us, I think, are at this stage at some point. Everything we see is either or. I like it. I dislike it. It's good. It's bad. It's familiar. It's unfamiliar. It's safe. It's dangerous. It's us. It's them. It's good. It's bad. You know, everything is put into one category or another. And in a sense, that's a stage of development. When we learn how to speak, we learn, oh, this thing fits in the category blue. That thing fits in the category green. It's either blue or green. When you're shown blue, green, you don't know exactly what to do. You got to push it one way or the other because that's the skill you're learning. But then, sadly, if that's the stage that a lot of our religious organizations get stuck in, then they don't let people grow beyond that stage. And so you grow up Baptist and Catholic is bad. You meet a Catholic who's really, really nice, and you meet fellow Baptists who are really, really a pain in the neck, but you can't even notice what's obvious because your categories won't allow you to. And that creates something psychologists call cognitive dissonance. When we start to hold these categories and we're afraid, because if we were to undo those categories, we would then be judged as heretics by the people that we love and care about and feel close to and belong to. So what what happens for many of us is we actually grow beyond a dualistic way of seeing into a non-dual or post-dual or another, we might say, into an integrative way of seeing. Or you might say we grow beyond judgmental thinking into critical thinking. Um, Judgmental thinking meaning we make an immediate judgment. Yes, no, good, bad, us, them, safe, dangerous, whatever. And critical thinking means we learn to look at something from a variety of perspectives. We learn some flexibility and adaptability in how we look at things. We try to see things from someone else's point of view. And Uh, that ability changes us. And many of us grow up in a setting where we're right, everybody else is wrong. And all of our encounters with someone else involve trying to convert them to be like us. And eventually, some of us get the freedom to say, well, maybe actually I have something to learn from them. (laughs) Uh, And maybe I do have treasures to offer them, but they might have treasures to offer me. I might have blind spots. I better be careful I don't impose upon them. That to me is part of growth. And more and more of us 
need to take those steps of growth and our religious communities won't let us. Brian has done an incredible job over his career, really digging into and addressing so many of the issues that we deal with on this podcast. So since we're at least loosely talking about the church right now, I asked Brian, what are some of the major problems that he's seeing with the Christian church or in a broader sense, the Christian faith? right now i'm sure there's a lot that you could grab from and again as i've mentioned before this doesn't mean that there's not great things about church and faith these are just some of the things that brian recognizes are the major things that we have to dive into and deal with okay well i'm I'm going to be really frank there are several that i think are are super significant here in America, we have to acknowledge that the Christian religion has been a racist religion since the beginning. I hope that won't freak people out for me to say it that bluntly, but it has to be said. The Christian religion justified genocide against the native people. It justified land theft. It, it created elaborate theological justifications to say that white people who were stealing the lands of native people were civilized and the native people who were trying to defend themselves from invaders were savages, right? And and we came up with elaborate religious justifications for this that we have never really come to terms with. That then expanded into the racism of slavery. Some years ago, I I wrote a book and as part of my research for the book, I felt that I needed to read pro-slavery literature from before the Civil War. And what was so disturbing about this, you know, thank God there's not much of a market for it, but scholars are now saying, hey, this is literature we need to have access to. So some of these books are being republished as, you know, historical artifacts, and, and some of them are available online. And as I read them, I thought, this is exactly the way people preach today. Now, they might not be choosing this verse to prove that point, but they haven't had any reflection on that way of using the Bible that makes horrible things justifiable, right? So this whole issue of race, we're not touching it. And I don't think any form of Christianity deserves to survive and thrive if it doesn't come to terms with the racism of our past. And if you want to go before American history, anti-Semitism is so deeply rooted in in Christian history. Uh, So That's one whole area. I have no interest in doing anything to buttress or support or strengthen any form of Christianity that does not deal with our racist past. One of our problems in the religious world is we're very interested in being right, having the right thought or the right concept. And so on the issue of race, if there's a certain thing that can happen where people just say, oh, okay, I need to be correct. So I need to care about race. I need to say that's wrong. But the irony is there's a way of doing that without ever entering into the reality of racism on an emotional level. This is not just a matter of my, am I for or against racism? This is a matter of, do I feel this? Do I feel, do I have empathy for what my African-American friends feel like every time somebody defends a stand your ground law. I live in Florida where stand your ground laws justified someone murdering Trayvon Martin, right? Or, or when when the president says the Chinese virus, and you just know that's just waving a red flag in front of racists, anti-Asian racists, right? And, and 
it makes your life more difficult when you're emotionally connected to these issues. But I don't think we're on the right side. Well, here's a way to say it. We've all been obsessed with orthodoxy, but there's something called orthopathy, which means right feeling. And that's why that call to lament is so deeply, deeply important. And it makes your life harder. But maybe that's part of what Jesus meant when Jesus said, blessed are they who mourn. When your heart is out there, you're, you're wearing your heart on your sleeve enough that it's not just your own problems you're concerned about, but the suffering of your, of your neighbor. Another one is authoritarianism. You know, the fact that 81% of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump and a, almost that many will vote for him again, maybe even more. I just read a, a data from a few days ago that said that the, the strong majority of evangelicals think that Donald Trump is an upright and moral person. And so, look, whatever people think, whether they're Democrats, Republicans, I mean, the fact is this guy, talk about the greatest. He is one of the greatest liars in history. He just lies all the time. And the fact that people don't care about this and that grabbing genitals and that uh, paying off porn stars and that, you know, sexualizing his daughter, the fact that this doesn't bother them says to me that something is very, very wrong. And I think what it tells us is that authoritarianism and patriarchy are so deeply rooted in many Christian traditions. By the way, this is a thing that unites evangelicals, Roman Catholics, and Eastern Orthodox. They all have so bought into patriarchy as not just the model of the church, but the model of the universe. I mean, this Donald Trump thing just makes it obvious. And it's not just happening here. In Brazil, it's Bolsonaro. And in, uh, in the Philippines, they, they have their own strongman. And in Russia, it's Putin. And what people don't realize is that Catholics are lining up in the Philippines, and evangelicals and Catholics are lining up in Brazil, and, and, and Russian Orthodox uh, in, in Russia. This inability to see the danger of authoritarianism is, to me, really, really scary. I'll just mention one other. We could mention many others. But the third one is, is concern about the environment. You know, we think we've got a problem with COVID-19. This is just like our little introductory warm-up for dealing with climate change. And because of the stresses that COVID-19 is bringing, we're going to see a lot of economic instability. But listen, we might get beyond COVID-19 in a couple of years. We're not going to get beyond climate change and the challenges it's going to cause probably, you know, for centuries. Even if we do everything right now, we still have centuries of adjustment to make. And when that kind of instability comes, the danger of authoritarianism is going to become higher and higher and higher. And watching religious people be absolute suckers for an authoritarian demagogue is deeply disturbing. Well, in the light of all of that, and maybe this question was just for myself, I wanted to know where Brian saw hope in church and in our Christian faith. Well, you know, uh, when when you ask me that, my first thought is Greta Thunberg, who, uh, you know, the young woman who's an activist about climate change. And she says, people always ask me to give them hope. She says, I don't want to give you hope. I want you to panic because the house is on fire. And I feel a little bit the same way with Christianity. I don't really want people to get hope anytime too soon because hope becomes their permission to be complacent. 
Interestingly, though, despair also becomes people's permission to be complacent. Either way, if you say, oh, there's no hope, I might as well give up. Or you say, oh, everything will be okay. There's good signs out there. I can go back to normalcy. I think I think what we have to do is say, no, these are dangerous times. Um, and so here's the truth. These problems that we see in Christianity, if we stop being Christian or stop being religious or whatever, guess what? There are problems in humanity. <laughs> um, it's not like politics is going to solve all of our problems. You know, politics is fine. Religion is a mess. Or economics is fine. Humanities are a mess. No, we human beings are in deep trouble. And so when you look at this as a human problem, I mean, if, you, if you're scientifically oriented, you could say, we're at a crisis of human evolution. Our capacities for prosperity and our capacities for war have grown beyond our, our moral wisdom. As soon as you see it in that light, you think, are the solutions that we need are moral and spiritual and social. And, you know, they're the kinds of things that we have to deal with with religion. So if we decided today that religion is an absolute failure and we just need to throw it out, then tomorrow we'd have to get up and start trying to invent a new one. <laughs> and, and that's why I think we have this work to do within our traditions to face what a mess we've made of things, to face the great danger and trouble that we're in, and then to go back and say, well, is there wisdom there? Are there treasures in our traditions? I actually think this is what Jesus is saying. I mean, Jesus dared to say, you have heard it said, but I say. In other words, our tradition has this wrong. The widely shared belief, what everybody says, I'm daring to say is wrong. But he also said that the kingdom of God is like someone who went and found a treasure buried in a field, and he sold everything he could. He bought the whole field just so he could get that little treasure. And I think that's part of what our challenge is. There are treasures there we, we need, and we can't just walk away from the field, if I can say it that way. You absolutely can say it that way. So brilliant. I love that perspective because it's so easy to get caught up in all of the issues, all of the struggles that we might have in our traditions. But we do have to remember that there's so much treasure there and that we can move forward from within because sometimes I think it's the cowardly thing to just jump out, but it's the difficult and really brave thing to stay within. I've been asking a lot of people that I've been talking to what this journey has cost them because Brian is a person, he used to be a pastor. He stepped away from that role. He's been very controversial in the evangelical circles because of his writings and because of his thinking. And I think it's important for us to chew on a little bit what this journey could cost us. I mean, the truth is it's not something I think about a lot because I just feels like you leave with a sense of being wounded and being hurt and being disappointed, but also being free. And for me, the freedom has been such a gain. You know, I, I don't mean to sound overly pious, but there's that place where Paul says everything that, you know, I, I used to count gain, I now count, count loss. And, and that is my honest feeling. But I, I would have to say this, it's funny, just in writing my book, The Great Spiritual Migration, and then in writing the book that I just wrote, 
I've had these waves of grief where I realize how much harm was done to me by my religious upbringing. Uh, I have a couple friends who are women who've written books about purity culture that was big in the 90s. And when I think about how much shame I was given about my sexuality, about, you know, I, I happen to be a heterosexual man, but I was given so much guilt about being heterosexual <laughs> and, and such inaccurate understanding of what it means to be a human being with sexuality of any kind, right? And I just think how much damage was done to me. Or I think about my intellectual curiosity and how I always had to think looking over my shoulder. I just think, oh, it's so sad. And I feel this grief for the eight-year-old version of me and the 12-year-old version and the 22-year-old version of me. Uh, in fact, as we're talking right now, my grandchildren are visiting uh, and they're just outside the door. The people might be able to hear their voices occasionally. And I just think, I'm so glad they're not being raised in that kind of environment. So many incredible things from this interview. So thankful to have Brian McLaren on the podcast this week. But wait, there is more because Brian hung in there with me for another about half an hour or so to talk about a topic that I love to dig into. And that is the idea of heaven and hell and salvation. So next week, we are going to hear from Brian again, talk about that subject. And I think you're really going to enjoy it. And it's really going to make you think. Of course, all of Brian's books are on his website. So I'll put a direct link there on the show notes of this show. And you can find him at Brian McLaren. That's Brian, as you'd think it'd be spelled. And then McLaren is M-C-L-A-R-E-N. So you can find him at brianmclaren.net. Of course, the best way to support this show is to subscribe, give us a five-star rating, and write a review. Until next time, keep walking.